so let me ask a question, especially for those of you that call First City home. What do you want to be known as, known for as a church? When you think about the things that define us as a church, if, if you think about the, the city and the world out there and, and the way that they think about First City, what would you want them to most think and believe and know about us as a church? What do you want to most define us? Well, I, I hope that to some degree you, you want and desire that we be defined by rich biblical theology and solid teaching. That's a very good thing. I hope that you would want to be defined by a gospel centrality and a desire for mission and church planting, uh, a church that, that values righteousness and holiness and serves our city well. But what about love? And when I mean love, I mean specifically the love that we have for one another, that, that within the bounds of this church, those that belong to First City, that there is a deep, heartfelt, sincere love for one another. Do you desire that that be the thing that we are most known for? Let me ask this. Suppose someone were to come to First City and not speak a word of English and have no conception of Christianity. Could they tell by our actions, our facial expressions, the the way that we interact with one another, would they be able to tell that love is a core identity for a Christian? Would they be able to tell at First City Church that we believe and we practice that love is foundational to our identity as a church and our identity in Christ? Would they know without understanding anything that we say that love is central purely by what we do? Now let me ask, what about if they went to your gospel community? Not not someone else's gospel community, but your gospel community. Would they know by the way that you interacted with one another, the the expressions on your face, the the way that you engage each other? Could they tell, hey, I don't know anything about Christianity, but what seems to be true is that love is central here. Love defines Christians. Because Jesus said the world will know us by what? Our love. It's an interesting concept, not by necessarily our theology, not necessarily by our own righteousness and holiness, but by our love. You see, we can have great teaching. We can have moving worship. We can have a killer missional and discipleship strategy. We can be a catalyst for church planting. We can serve and do a lot in our city. But what good are these things if a defining aspect of us as a community is not love? I mean, this is the way the Apostle Paul put it. I can speak with tongues of angels. I can know all mysteries. Like I can know everything. I can have all the theological knowledge in the world. But if I don't have love, it's worthless. And so church, for us, do we want to be defined as a community of love? Now, loving one another is a repeated theme in 1 John. And so if we sort of look at the the passage last week and how this passage follows on the heels of it, we saw John painting with very bold colors as he defined who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And this is one of the things that he wrote and we looked at last week. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Puts those two things right up next to each other. 
Walking in righteousness, yes. Walking in a way that reflects the character of God, yes. But with that has to be love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John is very clear. Loving one another is an essential aspect of our identity as a Christian. Love is at the very center. And so does love define us, First City Church? Does it define our culture? Underneath all the things that we do, all the activity that takes place, is there a culture of love? And so I want to unpack this passage this morning. And here is the main idea. No, no, no doubt, no questions. This is not surprising. But disciples of Jesus deeply and sacrificially love one another. That's, that's the point of this passage. That's the point that we, I want us to take to heart this morning. Disciples of Jesus deeply and sacrificially love one another. And there's three points to this that I want to unpack. First, the call to love. Second, going to look at the failure to love. And third, the definition of love. And here's my hope for us by God's word and his spirit. That for those of you that call on the name of Christ, those of you that belong to Jesus, that you would be encouraged to love. That you would be wrapped up in what the love that God has for you and that would cause you to want to go and love your brothers and sisters. And for those of you that don't know Christ or maybe you're unsure of what you believe, I want to clarify for you the centrality of love. And I hope that you see that this flows out of not trying to impress God, not trying to earn anything, but based on God's love for us. And so by his word, by his spirit, we will get there this morning. So let's first look at the call to love that John holds out for us. Now, if someone were to begin teaching that freedom was not central to the culture and the history of the United States, how would you react? Maybe with a little bit of a confusion. Maybe you would ask, hey, what books have you read? What school have you gone to? Because look, this is America, Jack, and we are all about freedom. And, and the, the questions that we would have and the, the sense of confusion that we would have would be based on understanding that our history is rooted in this concept. We can look back over, over 200 years of history in this country and we can see event after event and document after document and law after law that reflect what? That from the beginning, this country has placed as its foundation and central to its culture the idea of freedom. Now look, we haven't always lived that out perfectly. We've had to grow in that. But no one can deny that that has been something that has been central from the beginning. And if someone were to begin teaching that it hasn't, we would recognize, hey, this is new. This is novel. This does not follow what has historically been taught. And we see much the same dynamic happening in this passage, specifically in verse 11. So John's confronting some false teachers who want to, for whatever reason, say that love is not central to being a Christian. Now, we're not entirely sure what they were teaching or what they were doing, but whatever it was, it was causing these believers to doubt that love mattered, that they had to actually love their brothers and sisters. And so this is what he writes. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. John makes it clear, this call to love isn't something new. It's not something novel. It's, it's not some new development that's come up on the scene. From the beginning, this has been what you have heard. This is the message that's been proclaimed. Now, from the beginning is this wonderfully multi-layered statement. 
And you can sort of peel back the meaning and the layers of this to show that John's digging way back in history. So from the beginning, meaning from the moment John started preaching to these Christians and discipling these Christians, his message has always been, love one another. There has never been a time where John taught them that he didn't say, hey, love one another. From the beginning, the message has been to love one another. From the beginning, even before John began to teach, Jesus himself taught his disciples to love one another. Loving one another is central to Christ's teaching. He has always taught it. There's never been a time where Jesus didn't teach his disciples to love one another. This has been present from the beginning. From the beginning, Jesus didn't teach something new. He actually taught something that's been in God's word from the beginning. It's been a part of the identity of the people of God from the beginning. What are the two great commandments in the Old Testament? Love God and love your neighbor. This second part, this is the commandment that John is pulling on, that you are to love one another. This has been the call to God's people always. They've always been defined as a community of love. There's never been a time where loving others was not central. And this is John's point if we went back to chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. This was the passage that I didn't preach on because I got sick, and so we missed this. So I want to pull this passage into our talk here briefly. This is what chapter 2, verses 7 through 10 says. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. This old commandment, this call to love others, is a reference to the Old Testament. Love your neighbor. What God has always commanded his people to do. Not some new developments, but an essential identity of the people of God from the beginning. But then he goes on. He writes, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So there is a sense where this commandment to love is new. How so? Well, this phrase here, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, what does that mean? What is the true light that is shining in the darkness, causing the darkness to pass away? It's Christ and his gospel. And so here's what is new about the call to love. The call to love has always been there for God's people. What is new is that now Jesus is who defines that call. It is Jesus who defines our understanding of love. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. The call to love has always been there. But get this. When Jesus came, he turned the volume up. He turned the light up on our call to love. He raised the stakes. He gave us an even greater definition of what it means. But John's point here is that from the beginning, and no matter how you slice from the beginning, God has always been calling his people to love one another. You can't escape it. You can't talk around it. You can't go, yeah, but, you know, sin and judgment and confrontation. As if any of those things negate our call to love people. And so church, the question we have to ask, is this part of our identity? Like, do we recognize the call to love as essential to our discipleship? Or let me ask it this way. Do you measure your maturity as a disciple of Jesus based on the love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you recognize that love is essential to maturity as a disciple? And so I don't care how, how much you avoid you know, sinful things, how, how much you avoid illicit pleasures, 
how, how you don't indulge your sexual appetites or maybe your food appetite or you don't lie, you don't cuss, you don't cheat on your taxes. If you don't have love, you're not mature. If you don't have love, you're, you're cutting off an essential part of your identity in Christ. You're cutting off an essential part of your maturity. As we disciple one another, are we just interested in their sin management? As we're trying to help other, one another grow, are we just more concerned about, hey, stop doing these sins? Or do we want to help them grow in love? Are we encouraging them to love their brothers and sisters? Love is essential to our identity. And so church, the call on our lives is that love burn bright, that it's evident, that it's felt, that it's tangible, that it defines our life and our families and our neighborhoods and our jobs and our culture and in this church. From the beginning, the call has been to love. Now let's look at the failure to love. John holds out the call to love and then he contrasts it with failure to love. This is what he writes in verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So to illustrate the opposite of love, John uses the example of Cain. And if you're not familiar with the story of Cain, this is in Genesis 4, Cain and his brother Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was the older brother, and he farmed the ground. So he, he produced crops. And Abel was also a farmer, but he farmed livestock. And if you read in Genesis 4, you see that both would bring offerings to the Lord, but the Lord only accepted Abel's offerings. He didn't accept Cain's. And there was some angst that Cain had about this. He, he felt that it was unfair. He was angry at the Lord for this. But what we see in the story is that the reason the Lord did not accept Cain's offerings is because his heart was evil. He was trying to mask an evil heart, a heart that lacked faith with religious activity, and the Lord saw right through it. And so Abel, who had a heart of faith, who had a heart of love for the Lord, who worshiped the Lord, offered his, gave his offerings to the Lord, and the Lord received it. And what, what this did is this exposed Cain. It exposed his heart. It exposed his evil, lacking faith heart, and he hated his brother for it. And so he killed him. His jealousy, his envy, his hatred for Abel caused him to kill his brother. Now get this. Cain was Abel's older brother. If you're an older brother, what is your role to your younger brother? Oh, you protect your younger brother. You love your younger brother. You, you support your younger brother. You teach your younger brother the path of righteousness. Like you're there for him. And Cain completely violated this by murdering his younger brother. Everything that he should have been to his younger brother, he failed because he was jealous, because he was envious, because Abel challenged his status and exposed his evil heart. Oh, the tragedy of this is that Cain should have been one that Abel looked up to. He should have been one that Abel saw a pattern of righteousness and a model. He should have been one that Abel could go to for protection and, and comfort and support. But it was the exact opposite. Cain did not love his brother and he murdered him. And so John uses Cain as a mirror for our own hearts. He holds up Cain in his sin and asks us to look in that mirror and see if we see ourselves. 
Now look, we may not murder someone physically. We may not go after our brothers and sisters in Christ physically. But I wonder, in what ways are we murdering one another? What ways are we neglecting one another because of what is going on in our hearts? Because at the root of Cain's sin and the root of our sin, our failure to love is the same thing. It's pride. It's pride. And so just take a moment and, and take some stock of your heart and, and reflect. Do, do any of these things ring true for you in your failure to love? Maybe the call to love falls hollow on you because you really don't want to give up any resources. You worked hard for what you have. And, and why should someone else who maybe made some bad decisions and put themselves in need get the benefit of my hard work? It isn't fair. Or maybe you just value your comfort. You, you, you don't want the inconvenience of people's mess coming up and messing up things in your neatly ordered world. And so you value comfort. You value the comfort of resources. You value the comfort of a nice, neat, ordered world and relationships. And so you murder your brother and sister through neglect, through that selfishness and that pride that will not cause you to love them. Or maybe your pride takes the form of fear. You fear you don't have it take what it takes to love someone. You, you, you don't want to be seen as a failure. You don't want to look at like a fool because you tried to help someone and it didn't work out and look at everybody's going to go, hey, they stink at that. Or maybe you're like Cain and jealousy rules your heart. You're jealous of someone else's status. You're jealous of their circumstances. You're jealous of their spiritual maturity. And in light of their life, you feel like a failure. You feel exposed. You feel your lack. And then you construct a narrative in your mind of all the reasons that they're phony, all the reasons that they're, they're wrong, all the reasons that they've aggrieved you and offended you. And so you hurt them. You, you back away from them. You'll never actually love them and be proactive because you're jealous and you're envious. Or maybe you're hurting, and so you lash out. Maybe circumstances have you raw, and so rather than loving your brothers and sisters, you lash out in pain. And with this, we can be so caught up in our pain that, man, if I love someone else, if, if, if I give of myself to someone else, then I may lose status as the one who is in pain. I may lose status as the one who is suffering. People aren't going to see that, and, and I like that people see me that way. I like that, that I'm sort of held up as this person who needs help. Like, look, suffering and pain and woundedness give you a lot of capital in our world today. Can we be honest about that? And often, if we step away from that and, and move away from that identity, we don't know who we are. We, we lose a sense of self. And so it'll keep us from loving one another. It'll keep us from serving. It'll keep us from stepping outside ourselves and loving our brothers and sisters. Look, whatever the form of pride may be, here's what happens. We close off our hearts. We close off our hearts to our brothers and sisters, those that we should be the most committed to, 
those that we should be the most loving towards, those that we should most want to see thrive, those that we, we should be the most open and sacrificial towards, we close our hearts off to them. We, we, we close our hearts off in such a way that we neglect and we murder one another. Now, church, this is not how God has called us to live. We should not be like Cain. We should not let this, these things in our heart, this pride in our heart, keep us from loving our brothers and sisters. And look, we're all going to struggle. We're all going to struggle. We all fail at this. We can all own this. We all can recognize the ways that we've grown indifferent. We can all recognize the ways that we fail to love our brothers and sisters. But John holds out a pretty strong warning for us here. Like, let's acknowledge that we, we fail at this, but then let's also hear this warning in verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's John's point. Look, you cannot hate the people of God, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and truly belong to God. As we saw last week, the DNA of the Lord, the spiritual DNA, the seed, if it is in your heart, if eternal life is in your heart, then you are going to love the things that God loves. Parents, if I were to say, hey, I want to be your friend. I want to be close to you. I want to know you. I want to have this great relationship to you. But guess what? I hate your kids. Are we going to have a good relationship? Are, are, am I going to be close with you? Are, are, we going to, are our heartbeats going to, to, to be in lockstep if I say I hate your kids? No. Why? Because to be in deep fellowship with someone is to love what they love. It, it, to celebrate what they celebrate. To, to have a sense that, hey, what gets you excited, what you love, what you value, I value the same thing. I love the same thing. How can we say we know God? How can we say that the Spirit of God lives in us if we hate his children? And so John is asking a very pointed question here. He's pressing the issue. Look, if you don't love the people of God, God's word, God's spirit, God's life is not in you. And so we have to ask this question. Is it that, yes, I love God's people, I love my brothers and sisters, but I'm terrible at it, and I fail at it, and I'm still figuring out how to do it. But deep down, no matter how messy it gets, no matter how painful it gets, no matter how much I see my failures, I still love them, and I want to love them, and I know I should grow in that. And so I'm pressing towards, and I'm repenting of those things, and I'm giving myself to grow in ways that show that I love my brothers and sisters. Or are you just indifferent? Like, if you're hit with that challenge, you're just like, okay, whatever, so what? We need to be mindful of what's going on in our hearts. Do we love the people that God loves? Do we celebrate what God celebrates? Even in the mess and the challenge, are we working through and pushing past to genuinely and deeply love the people of God? Here's the good news for you if that's the case. You passed from death to life. As John has said, you have passed from death to life. The spirit of God is at work in you. He's, he's transforming you into someone who loves more and more. 
And so there's good news here. There's hope here. Even though John's pushing hard and laying down sort of this challenge and making it very black and white, he drops this gospel promise in here for us. That even if we blow it, even if we're messing it up, if there's deep, genuine love in there, we've passed from death to life. And there's great hope. And so we've considered the call to love, considered the failure to love, and now the definition of love that John holds out for us. Verse 16 John gives us this definition. By this, we know love. Man, I love it when scripture is this clear. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Like our definition of love, our reference point of love, our most significant experience of love is that Christ laid down his life for us. Ah, he held nothing back. He spared no expense, not even his life to love us. This is the love, this is the sacrifice, this is the service by which we define our love for one another. And look how John applies this principle. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So interesting sort of application here. So he first holds up, Christ laid down his life. This is how we know love. And the immediate application is, hey, if you see that your brother has the world's goods, if he's in need, you should give. So, so how do those two things sort of flow? How is it that give, Christ giving his life flows into us giving of our goods to our brothers and sisters? Well, let's consider what Christ did for us. Like Jesus saw our need. Jesus saw our spiritual poverty. Jesus saw that we were without hope of redemption and rescue and freedom apart from divine rescue. And he stepped into our world and he gave from his abundant resources. Jesus gave from what he had to meet our needs. Jesus gave all that he had so that we and our greatest needs could be met and we could be loved and cared for. I mean, consider this. Jesus saw that we were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus saw that we had no righteousness of our own, and so he saw our need, and so he gave us his righteousness. We were full of shame, disgraceful, polluted, and dirty, and Christ saw our need, and so he gave us his holiness. He gave us his purity. He gave us his honor and place as a loved son. Oh, we stood guilty as rebels, arrogant and prideful. Christ saw our need, he saw our debt, and he paid with his own flesh and blood his very life for our forgiveness. Oh, Christ saw that we are dead and dying, and he gave us his very resurrection life. Oh, Christ has given out of the abundance of his resources, he has not spared anything for us. This is what it means to lay down our lives, is to take everything that we have and pour it out for others. It is to take the things that God has given us so that we may bless and give to others. In all of this, Christ did not say, look, it's not fair. Like, I am completely good and righteous and holy why should I have to die for a bunch of sinners who are rebellious and ungrateful and self-destructive? Christ did not say, hey, look at the status that I'm giving up. Like, I am God in the flesh, and yet here I am. I'm going to be humiliated and spit on and denied, and people are going to lie about me. Don't they know who I am? 
Why should I have to do that? No. He willingly loved. He willingly set aside his rights. He willingly poured out himself. And as scripture says, he took the form of a servant. And he became obedient and he served us even to the point of death. Christ spared no expense. This is what John is pulling these Christians in to look at, to say, hey, here's how we understand love. If we're going to love one another, let's get something straight first. Let's look at the love by which we have been loved. Let's look what God and Christ has done. That is how we define our love for one another. Jesus spared no expense. Out of his abundance, out of his resources, he gives to those who are in need. This is the nature of our God. Our God is generous. Our God is gracious and overflowing with his mercy and his grace to people who don't deserve it. And yet he freely and willingly and gladly does it. Oh, this is the love that we have, church. This is the love by which we define our love for one another. And if we have been captured and transformed and shaped by that radical of love, should our hearts not reflect the same thing? A true, deep, heartfelt love. Not love that's sentimental. Not love that just, hey, when I feel good about doing this for you. Not just love that pays lip service. Not just love that, hey, when I do this, I feel good about myself and I get something from it. But no, true, deep, heartfelt love is revealed in a willingness to give out of our resources, material and even spiritual. It's seeing my brother and sister's need. And notice what John says, seeing. Not wait till they come and ask for your help. Seeing and being proactive because that's how God was with us. We didn't go to him asking for help. He came after us. And so when we see our brother and sister in need, we see whether it's material and physical needs, We go and we give out of the resources that we have. We willingly, we lovingly sacrifice, we pour out ourselves, our time and our resources and our energy for one another. Or maybe it's spiritual. Maybe you see your brother or sister floundering, caught in sin, struggling in their faith. And God has you in a place where you can go and love them and disciple them and care for them. But we give of our time, we give of our energy, we give of our resources, we pour out, spare no expense. This is the love that reflects family. What is mine is yours. All that I have, God has given me, it's not mine, and so I'm going to pour it out so that others may thrive. That's the love that John is calling us to. That is the love that God calls us to in his word. This is a love that reflects the radical love by which we have been loved. Now, let's just acknowledge something here that I think needs to be said. There are going to be people who abuse our love. There are going to be people that take advantage of your graciousness and your mercy and your love. That's part of it. They did it to Jesus. Hey, we do it to Jesus. It's going to happen. But there's a big difference between hey, my posture and my heart is I want to love and I want to help you and my my heart is I will spare no expense and then maybe having to dial it back if we're enabling people versus I don't trust you and you got to prove yourself to me before I'll give you anything. Big difference. Big difference is the posture of our heart is the thing that we lead with, is our first move. Hey, I love you. 
and what is mine is yours. How can I serve you? What can I do? Or, or stepping in and saying, hey, I see there's a need here. Let me, let me help you. Look, can, can I love you? Can I serve you? Like the Lord has blessed me in this way and I would love to be a blessing to you. That is our first move. That is our heart. That reflects the generosity that we have been shown through Jesus Christ. And so church, let us be crazy over-the-top generous with our time and our resources. Let's be so captured with the love that God has for us, that we belong to him, that we have an identity in him, that we've been forgiven, that we're overcomers, that we have the spirit of God, that God has blessed us, that we want to say, hey, I want to just give that all away. I want to give you all that I have. I want to see you thrive. I want to love you and I want to serve you. May that be our culture here. So let me just say this in conclusion. Like the focus of this passage is on Christians loving one another. And look, just like your first priority is your family, it is the same. The people of God start by loving the people of God. But it never stops there. Like look, how, how does the Trinity express love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have been in for eternity, been in this loving relationship, this mutual relationship with one another. They don't just hoard it, though they could. No, they actually invite others in. They they invite people in to experience that love, come in and experience true joy in life, and we're the same way. Like the love that we have for one another, we put on display for this world, and we invite other people in that they might experience the same love. We invite other people in so they may experience Christ and be transformed by him. And so this doesn't cause us to be insular. This doesn't cause us to just be focused on ourselves and shun the world. No, by loving one another, we put that on display and we want to see more people come in. And so church, let's be captured by the love Christ has for us. Let's love one another deeply and in truth. And let's put that love on display so that our city and our world can see the love of Christ and be transformed by it. Amen.